You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. And if you're not a member, consider joining. Members get extra episodes just for Patreon subscribers, and all our episodes ad-free. Membership starts at just $2 a month. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl for more info. And as always, thanks for listening. Hey, Ancient History Fangirl fans. My name's Kate, and I run a podcast called The Exploress, where I take you time-traveling through history to find out what life was like for women of the past. Each season takes us back to a particular time and place to explore the lives and worlds of women, what they wore, where they lived, what they ate, and so much more. In season two, I've gone back to the ancient world, including Egypt, Greece, and now ancient Rome. So if you want to find out whether Roman women wore a bra or not, explore the sacred spaces of the Vestal Virgins, or dive deep into the stories of the women who both shaped the empire and fought against it, check it out. You'll find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Enjoy the show. I try not to think too hard about the bum sponge. I'm Jen McManamy. And I'm Jenny Williamson, and this is Ancient History Fangirl. So, as you can probably tell, this episode isn't dropping on a normal day. And this isn't a normal episode. It's a very special after-school Ancient History Fangirl episode. It's that one where the bill becomes a law. (laughs) Something, something. It's very special after-school conjunction, junction. What's your function? (laughs) Right. (laughs) So the one where they show you how a pregnancy happens or something. <laughs> oh, God. Do you know I actually won a writing competition for a PSA on teen pregnancy? You did? I did as a high schooler. A friend of mine did the illustration. <laughs> <laughs> Is this still exist and can I read it? <laughs> <laughs> I'll see if I can find it somewhere. Anyway, let's actually get back to why we're here on a random, not normal day. We are thrilled to welcome Kate from the Explorers podcast to talk about some of our favorite ladies in history. And I just want to let everyone know we are recording this on three continents, at least three different time zones. It's three different time zones that are very far apart. Kate is in the future. Kate is in the future. I'm in the future. Jenny's in the past. Jenny hasn't even left the summertime yet. She's still on summertime. I wish that was true. So The Explorers is a narrative history podcast that follows women in history from one age to another. Kate has recently finished her second series, which focused on women in ancient Greece, and we're huge fans. We're delighted to have this talented storyteller on our podcast. Welcome. Thank you for coming on. Thanks, ladies. I'm so happy to be here. I am a super huge fangirl of both of you, so this is very exciting. The fangirling is mutual. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> yeah. Fangirls unite. <laughs> uh, so tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, much like you two, I am a woman who wears many, many hats. I am a nonfiction editor, so I work on pretty coffee table books about travel and adventure and history and aromatherapy and all sorts of stuff. I have been a teacher. I teach workshops. I was a high school teacher for several years and loved it. I write fiction. I write young adult fiction, often with magic. Sometimes with history, always with badass ladies in it. Um, And the thing that ties all that together for me is that I am obsessed with history and I'm obsessed with storytelling. So I work from home and I haven't been a teacher for a couple of years and I was really missing teaching. And so I was thinking about that when I first started listening to podcasts. And I was really excited to look for podcasts about history, but particularly about women in history. And I found some really good ones, but they tended to be focused on the biographies of famous women, which were great. But I often found myself 
wondering, you know, what kind of underwear were these women wearing when they did these amazing things? Like, what kinds of makeup were they using? What rights did they have and did they not have? What kinds of conversations were they having? What did their houses look like? What did the streets smell like? I feel like I was trying to appreciate them in a vacuum, and it made it difficult for me to really appreciate the cool ways that they went against convention because I didn't feel like I truly understood the worlds they were in. And I was missing teaching and just missing the performative aspect of getting up in front of a bunch of kids and being like, listen, today we're going to talk about Macbeth and shit is going to get so crazy. You won't believe what's going to happen in Act 3. You know, like I just missed that. So I put those things together and was like, well, I'm just going to give this a try. I'm going to create a podcast. And the whole point of the podcast is going to be, I want it to feel like time travel. I want to feel like we're going back in time and seeing these particular times and places through a woman's eyes. And so I always start there and I try to talk about just to take listeners through a day as a woman in a particular time and place. And then I branch out from there and talk about famous ladies. But I also try to talk about lesser known ladies and kind of categories of women. So in my first season, I talked about mid 19th century America around the Civil War era. So I talked about Civil War spies and secret lady soldiers, as well as kind of the more famous women like Clara Barton and Harriet Tubman. Oh, Clara Barton. I remember I was really sick. I think I had maybe chicken pox or the flu or something. And I had to do a book report on Clara Barton. It was the first historical book that I like I read cover to cover. I was so fascinated with her. Oh, man, I'm going to tell you some things about her in a little bit. Oh, please do. (laughs) Absolutely. I'd be fascinated. I'm always super curious about what underwear people are wearing as well. (laughs) I just need to know they're wearing underwear. I don't need to know anymore. (laughs) Oh, I know how you feel. I know how you feel about the underwear. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) When I started the podcast, the thing I realized was that some of this stuff sounds trivial. Like, you know, what underwear was she wearing sounds trivial. But if you really think about it. Oh, no, that's very important. (laughs) Yes. Like, how much would it change our day-to-day lives and how we conduct ourselves if the three of us were wearing hoop skirts and crinoline and corsets all day? It would change so much about how we carry ourselves, how we get on and off public transport, how we talk to people. That stuff makes a massive difference. And in order to really appreciate what the lives of women of the past were like. You have to explore that stuff. Yeah, it's like freedom of movement, right? I couldn't be sitting in my bedroom with my head in this box for recording if I was wearing a hoop skirt. (laughs) And just to explain to people who haven't seen this, Jenny lives in a studio apartment and she has quite an echo problem. So she records all of her episodes with her head in a soundproof box. I did. Like Schrodinger's cat. (laughs) I just feel like... I feel like sometimes we assume people know things. It's hard to picture, but it's like a sort of a cloth box. It's about a foot to two feet wide on both ends. And like it's got acoustic foam in it and my microphone in it. So that's what I'm doing every time. Um. Oh, what was I going to say too? The thing I really love about your podcast, Kate, is how deep you get into the everyday lives of women in different societies, because that's something we don't cover as much as I, I kind of envisioned when we started the podcast. Like we wind up getting sucked into these big sweeping arcs and not taking time to just stop and talk about that. And I really love how you delve into that. Thank you. I think of my episodes kind of as companion pieces to some of the podcasts I love, like your podcast and the History Chicks and Queen's podcast. I like to try to create stuff that feels like you could listen to my episode and then go listen to one of your episodes on, you know, Cleopatra and that combines. You're going to get a really full immersive picture. Yeah, I was actually listening to your Egypt episodes and um, there was this one about, you know, a woman's everyday life in ancient Egypt. This detail really stuck with me (laughs) about going to the bathroom in a box. (laughs) Oh, yes. Oh, yes. So there's not a lot of plumbing in ancient Egypt. When you go to the bathroom, you're not going to do it on the toilet the way we think of a toilet. So a lot of ancient Egyptians have something that's kind of like a toilet, but it's essentially like, it's like a litter box in that there's a basin and there's a seat and in the bottom there is sand and you do your business in the box full of sand and then you get rid of your business at a later date. Well, it (laughs) makes sense for odor control, right? Oh, totally. Yes. Probably clumps. It's easier to get rid of, you know. Exactly right. It's easy to just bury if you can't like dispose of it right that minute. It makes a lot of sense. I mean, given their climate, that that makes a lot of sense. And what's so funny is that we're still doing that for, you know, thousands of years afterwards. Like in the Victorian era, people are essentially still going to the bathroom that way, which is mind 
mind-boggling. Like, a lot of the well-to-do Victorians, before they had proper plumbing at home, had these, like, they essentially would look like bedside tables, but then, sneakily, you could open the top and there was a seat there and a basin underneath. So exactly the same thing the Egyptians were using. Wow, that is blowing my mind right now. Your toilet was basically in your bedroom, like right next to the bed. Yes, yeah, very convenient. Very convenient. I mean, you could be like half asleep and just go. Yep, sure could. And no one would be the wiser. Do you know why we don't know about this? We don't know about this because people who write romance novels do not include these details because you know why? It is not sexy. And people who write historical fiction, I suspect it gets cut out by the editor. Exactly. All historical fiction and romance. We No one ever goes to the bathroom. Ever. Nobody poops in romance novels. <laughs> Jenny's writing historical fiction and she had a scene where the heroine went to the bathroom. And I was like, we don't need this. Jen was like, cut <laughs> it out, please. <laughs> I was like, no, the hero cannot. She cannot. He cannot. No, sorry. There can't be a poop in the woods that she just did. <laughs> Whereas I would have said, yes, I love it. Tell me more. Give me more details. Nobody poops. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody pees. <laughs> Nobody poops. Everyone has to wear underwear. That's right. We're just going to imagine everyone's wearing underwear. Well, I'm not, but Jen is. <laughs> you do what you want with your imagination. I am not the thought police. <laughs> and there's like a really personal backstory to go with that that I was going to put in the podcast and didn't because I was like, oh, that's TMI. But I could certainly tell you if you'd like to hear it. <laughs> oh, please do. I That fact I loved so much and it made me laugh because when I got married, my husband and I went on a two-month honeymoon, and we were basically living out of our car and camping around America. And I was very excited about it, but I told my husband, look, you know I have severe bathroom issues. Going to the bathroom in public toilets is very psychologically difficult and traumatic for me. Oh, same. Yes. So it's very deeply entrenched, and I was like, look, I just think that's going to be a problem and I'm worried about it. So my husband goes to a camping store and he buys me essentially like a plastic toilet that you can cart around from place to place. And I guess the idea is that you put it in your tent. So if you need to go to the bathroom in your tent, you can do that. It's essentially just a litter box. Like you put sand in the bottom of it. Oh, like the Victorians and the Asian Egyptians. Yeah, so he basically built me an Egyptian toilet that we could take with us camping. And I was like, this is why I'm marrying you. And then I told that story in my wedding speech, and he was really horrified. But I was like, this is exactly why I'm marrying this man, because he knows me. And he was like, Kate, that was too much. <laughs> gonna gonna disagree on that. Nope. <laughs> Listen, this is how I explain true love to people. I can't explain it any better. Exactly. <laughs> you know what? You got a swoon from me. Swoon. <laughs> total swoon that's so romantic <laughs> i thought so kate do you have any criteria for choosing which women you decide to cover or which time periods yes so i mean in terms of choosing time periods for season one because i was so new to podcasting i wanted to choose something that i felt like i already was really interested in and had read a lot about because i thought oh yes this is the civil war era in america i know lots about that this won't be hard of course I realized, and I'm sure I'm sure this happens to you too all the time. It's like, oh, yes, yes, yes. I already know so much about this time period. And then you start reading and it's like, I know nothing. I knew nothing about this time period. <laughs> <laughs> I just want you all to know, just for the record, Julius Caesar was supposed to be two episodes. Three episodes. Three episodes. I was like... I basically know this story. I can do one on the early life, one on the Gauls, and one on the stabby stab. <laughs> that is what she called them. <laughs> the ancient world Stark family was supposed to be two episodes. Cleo and Antony was supposed to be one or two episodes. <laughs> wow. Didn't happen that way. <laughs> nope. Yeah, it never works like that. You get into the details and you realize how much there is to say and you have to let the material be your guide. So that's usually what I do when I'm choosing who to cover and what to cover. You know, I let the research be my guide. So it really depends on what I discover and what interests me. And I kind of just go down those paths. But I do try to be as diverse as possible. I want to explore women from every class, rich and poor, different backgrounds. And I knew from the beginning that I didn't just want to talk about famous women. I wanted to talk about women that we didn't know as much about. So often, if I discovered a woman or a detail about women that I was like, wow, I cannot believe 
I've never heard about that before. I knew that I had to get it in somehow. So for my first season, I knew I wanted to talk about secret lady soldiers in the Civil War because I just thought that was so, so interesting. That is such a fascinating topic. I know. And it's something that we're talking about more now. But 10 years ago, I discovered this book all about women who acted as soldiers in the Civil War. And it just blew my mind. I couldn't believe how many women fought and that we never talk about it. So I knew I wanted to cover that. I wanted to talk about spies. I wanted to talk about nurses. But the more and more I read, the more and more sex work popped up because there were so many sex workers during the Civil War and some that followed the army around. And there were these women who made huge fortunes and had massive influence by running brothels and becoming these really famous women of the evening. And there was just this whole culture of women selling their bodies and what that meant to them and how it could lead to this incredible freedom as well as a life of servitude. And we think of the Victorian age as so buttoned up, but in a lot of ways it really wasn't. It's just that they didn't talk about their sex lives so much. So when I discovered that, I knew I wanted to talk about both sex in the Victorian era and just the lives of sex workers and also women who suffered sexual violence during the Civil War because there were so, so, so many. And I feel like that's just something when we talk about the Civil War, we don't talk about. No, because it's so much more recent than something like ancient Rome. So you just assume people are going to behave with some decency, but no. We cannot assume that. But I also think what's so interesting about this topic is you've essentially reframed the Civil War to tell it through the lens of women's stories, which I think is so important because we don't get that perspective enough. Exactly. Civil War history is so male dominant. We mostly always talk about men. And the more I read, the more I discovered, God, there's so much to say about how women participated in the war from so many different angles and of course women who were enslaved who were quite literally watching the fight for their fates playing out around them there was just so much to say about women and how they experienced that time so it's hard because I know I can never cover every interesting woman from a particular time and place I tend to gravitate towards either those who broke the mold or who I think have something interesting to show us about the time period that we may not have considered before so which historical figure have you covered so far that surprised you this is when we get back to Clara Barton. Oh, Clara Barton. Yes, please. I've got my tea. Tell me some stories. Oh, Clara. I'm going to swoon <laughs> right now. A swoon. Swoon. We should all swoon for Clara. Are you ready? One, two, three. Swoon. swoon. <laughs> okay, tell me why we're swooning. <laughs> okay, so Clara Barton is a woman who did an insane number of things during her lifetime. She's that woman who makes you feel like you have done nothing good with your life. She was a Civil War nurse. She was founder of the American Red Cross. She was an incredible teacher. She worked at a female penitentiary for a year, which is something I didn't know about her and was something she tried to play down. But she basically stepped into this women's prison and made these amazing reforms in this place where women were really not treated very well. She went into war zones more than once. And even into her 70s, she was going abroad into war zones and kind of just really getting on the ground and helping soldiers and trying to bring them relief. She was an amazing lady. And most of us learn about her in school. And what we learn about her is very well scrubbed. She was called the angel of the battlefield. And that's kind of the picture we get of her. She did such a good job of creating her own PR because she wanted to be seen as the angel of the battlefield. She wanted to have, especially I think as a woman who never got married, a single woman during her era. She wanted to be seen as this very angelic figure, essentially someone who never didn't do wrong. She just wanted to be able to control her own narrative, which I can completely appreciate. But the thing I've found about women in history is that they're so often painted as either angels or devils. You know, it's very moralized. It's like either she was this virginal paragon that we should all want to emulate, or she was this evil seductress who ruined men and tore out hearts and ate them and, you know, all that. So true. Yeah, it's so true. It's so true in the ancient world. It's so true all through history. So many of the women that we cover um, in our podcast really get the whole she was a devil kind of treatment, you know, in various different ways. And I feel like, you know, a lot of the time in the historical accounts, men are allowed complexity and women aren't. Women are sort of painted with this. And if they have any power at all, you know, they're kind of painted with this negative brush. So you have to sort of sort through that. Yeah. And I feel like with Clara Barton, because she never married, she never had kids. She never went down that traditional route, which is amazing for her time period. It was really important that she had her own period 
PR machine because, number one, she probably didn't want to be seen as an old maid, which was like the worst thing in the world, which I mean, jog on. But also like she was an early businesswoman and she really was making those strides. She was a PR maven. She really wanted to leave a legacy that was kind of scrubbed clean of a lot of I don't know, the juicier bits. And so I wondered to myself, am I going to have anything to say about her that other people haven't already covered? Because what I really want is to learn who she actually was beyond this image of her of an angel. And when I started reading about her, I found so much that made her less of a cardboard cutout and into a hero with complexity. So, you know, I found out that she was a perfectionist, but that she didn't always play well with others. She got into a lot of trouble because it was her way or the highway, and she was actually kind of a pain in the ass to try to collaborate with because she thought she knew best. I found out that she suffered from intense bouts of anxiety and doubt. She had some really crippling depression when she felt like she didn't have a purpose. And even though she never married, there are suggestions that she had a very flirtatious romantic connection with this military man who was married, so much so that they even had pet names for each other. So, oh, Clara. <laughs> I know. I was like, whoa, fanning my face. What are their pet names? <laughs> oh, of course, now I'm not going to remember. I think his name for her was something like Birdie or My Little Birdie or something like that. So, you know, I'm not trying to suggest that they got it on in his tent, but I mean, they could have, and we'll never know. I mean, we're not ruling it out, you know? <laughs> yeah, no. No, we can't rule it out. And I feel like when we talk about women like Clara Barton, details like that are so fascinating, but we often leave them out because we think that it's going to somehow tarnish her legacy. But to me, learning all of that, none of that diminished her and how incredible she was. In fact, it just made me love her all the more to know that she was complex and layered. Of course she was. Just like men from history, women from history were also, they also contained multitudes and were complex and made interesting and not always amazing decisions. So I was actually really surprised surprised by Clara how much depth there was to her and everything she did. So let's talk about Scythian warrior women. We adored covering this topic. These real-life Amazons are so fascinating. The leggings, the recurve bows. Can you tell us what you enjoyed most about researching the Scythians and what surprised you most about these people? Yes. So I think what surprised me most was not the level of equality they had with the men around them, but how they seem to have achieved that equality really fascinated me. I've been riding horses since I was young. Me too. Oh. Yes. And I feel like most of the people who ride horses now in the modern day, or at least as kids, are women. But back in the day, all the Scythians were riding. It was the way they got around. It was the way they fought. And even after years of riding horses, I'd never thought about how horseback riding is this great equalizer. You don't have to be super strong to be an amazing horseback rider. You don't have to be a certain height or have a certain build on a horse. It's just about skill and daring and your ability to communicate with your horse and not what genitalia you happen to have. Yeah, it's really about that relationship you know like that bond. Yes, it's all about that bond, which I loved knowing. It made me feel more connected to these women who lived at such a different time and lived such a different life than me because I've had that connection with a horse before and I felt like that was surprising to me to realize that so much of how they lived their lives was the reason why they were so equal in both work and play with the men around them. I also really liked their weed saunas. I was surprised and delighted by that. <laughs> the weed sauna! That was our favorite! That was our <laughs> favorite <laughs> like how how good they have badass tattoos they're wearing these massive gold belts and they're spending time in wheat saunas like take me back i know we had that in our episode too we were just like what are we doing why don't we live among the scythians we can totally gaslight them into taking us in <laughs> oh, yes. there's that great myth isn't there the sarmatian myth yeah the sarmatian myth about them just literally gaslighting their way into becoming a part of the people you probably told this story too i don't remember um but for people who are listening who don't remember who didn't listen to the episodes, there was a group of men who were also Scythians, but who had kind of lost the tradition of being free and riding free in the grasslands or whatever. And there was this group of wild Scythian women galloping along and like raiding their territories and stuff. And the men wanted to join this group. So what they did was make a camp sort of far away, like a safe distance away from the women's camp. And every night they moved it slightly closer until I guess they like 
started having sex. There was like one man who met up with one of the women and they wound up having sex. And then uh, she said, come back with a friend later. And like they all just kind of fell in together. And it was like this really beautiful myth. And what I loved about that myth was that the women did not become, quote unquote, tamed. The women got to stay free and the men had to adapt to their way of life, which is not a common theme in these stories. Because I get a little bit ragey when it's like the story is like the free wild woman has a baby and then she's tamed. I hate that trope. (laughs) I'm Helena Bonham Carter. And for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. So, Kate, you've recently spent some time in ancient Greece in your Explorer's time travel machine. And one thing we love about your podcast is how you look at the day-to-day life of women in ancient cultures or the Civil War, uh, whatever culture you're looking at. Could you tell us a little bit about what a day in the life of a woman in ancient Greece would have looked like? I sure can. I'm really loving spending time in the ancient world. It's been an amazing challenge and place to spend time. But as you two know too well, figuring out what women's lives were actually like in the ancient world is super frustrating because so many of the ancient writers, well, basically all of the ancient writers who have come down to us were men and don't go into a lot of detail about women and their doings, except to chastise them. They're not interested in women. I mean, occasionally you get somebody like Herodotus, right, who actually does write like a lot of the Scythian women details we got from him. Or you get some details from mythology or from the plays of people like Euripides or something like that. Who's Or is it Aristophanes? Still written by men, though. They're written by men. I'm trying to think of the one that Lysistrata, you get some details. Yeah, exactly. So a lot of what we have is vase paintings and we have plays and we have stories that are told with an agenda. So women are often this cautionary tale or they're the butt of some joke. So it's kind of hard to know for sure how many of these details are accurate? How much can we, you know, how much of a grain of salt do we need to take with this? Entire salt lick. (laughs) Yeah, massive, massive salt lick. The Dead Sea. (laughs) (laughs) Can you imagine if someone 2,000 years from now was going to judge based on our fiction exactly what our lives were like? That would be, that would make an interesting podcast episode. Oh, there was someone, I can't remember who it was, who was just tweeting the other day, an author, about how she's absolutely so tired of reading about men describing women's breasts, the size of them, the shape of them, like that the countertop came up to her breast or was just below her breast, like every single time. And it was a female point of view. The author was a female and she's like, the next time I write a male character, I'm just going to describe everything at crotch level. This is a thread going around. I don't know if you guys saw it. Like there was a thread about um, men writing novels, their descriptions of women and writing things from woman's point of view and like how badly some people did it and it was hilarious i mean that's kind of what you see though in in the ancient sources to be serious because that's who's telling you the story like what i want to know is like in ancient greece like what did you do with boobs like i've got boobs where did they go because if they were just free floating you didn't get anything done well they went they went into a bra a very early form of bra so they wouldn't have just been swinging in the breeze. Was this like a like a halter top or like how did the ancient bra work? I think it was called a strophion from memory and it was essentially just a almost like a a sports bra but it didn't have any straps. So if you were very well endowed you're probably still going to have a certain amount of swinging going on but the ladies are strapped down. Thank God for that. <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) We don't want to be walking down the street with any sexy jiggling. No one wants jiggling. Well, it's just one of those things where when you look at sort of like the reconstructions, which are all sort of Hollywood, um, you know, a lot of times they've got these very like slinky Grecian dresses, which are gorgeous. And somehow they have managed to make everything work. And I'm like, that that just would not work. There's gravity and there's like no tape. So this would not work. There's no structure. Especially movies about the ancient world. So many of those outfits are just so wrong. <laughs> so to get back to the question, <laughs> what I'm trying to say is it's it's tough to feel really confident about women we're doing day to day. And of course, a lot of that depends on where exactly they were living and what their status was. A slave or a sex worker's day is going to look a lot different from a well-to-do Athenian matrons. But some of the things that we know fairly for sure is that women 
in ancient Greece were not doing a whole lot in the public sphere. So the man of their household was very much in charge of them, and the woman of the house was responsible for keeping the home running smoothly. So they're managing servants and slaves, they're doing a whole bunch of weaving for the family, they're looking after younger siblings or kids. If they're a well-to-do Athenian lady, they're not going to be going to work out at the gym like their husbands or going to the Agora to sign contracts or mingle or do anything related to politics. They're probably not doing much at all outside the house, sadly. But there are socially sanctioned opportunities for women to get out and let their hair down. I think Athens had something like 170 festival days. Many of them were religious in nature, and some of them are run exclusively by women, which is pretty sweet. Who knows what happened in some of these festivals, but I like to imagine that they were getting nude and drinking out of wineskins and just generally being fabulous. Just going to say, if Dionysus came to town, there was a penis parade and every chance that if you disobeyed, you would be torn apart. You have to accept Dionysus into your heart and mind. It's not optional. You really do. It's not optional. He went across the whole ancient world spreading this news. If you didn't listen, you got torn limb from limb by his maynads. The good news. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the ancient world had a lot of ripping to shreds and a lot of just general bodily violence. The interesting thing about Dionysus is that it is female violence. Like, Dionysus doesn't do the ripping himself. He empowers the women to do the violence for him. Man ads ripping people limb from limb. I mean, who knows if that actually really happened in real life, but like, it's definitely in the mythology. Like, I could imagine if you're a woman in ancient Greece and you're not allowed to leave your house and you have very little agency in your own life because that's the way the society is. You might have some real serious repressed rage and maybe a little limb ripping is what you need every so often. Yes. And I love that about the religious system in ancient Greece. And this is also true to an extent in Rome is that it gives women an avenue to both power and expression. So, you know, during these festivals, they were socially sanctioned places where women could really let their hair down and party and express themselves fully. And they played a really vital role in a lot of the religious festivals and rites. And I like to imagine that that gave women a chance to bond together and a chance to let out some of their repressed rage. I think the idea behind those stories, too is really about terrifying the male patriarchy and reminding them that, like, their hold on things is very fragile. It's to remind men that, like, oh, God, if women ever figure out how shit it is, they could tear you apart. Yes. I think ancient men, especially ancient Greek men, had a real anxiety about that. I think they did have this deep, deep feeling of terror that, and you see that in some of their stories about the Scythian women as well, that they were kind of both turned on and completely terrified by the idea of women with physical agency. Dionysus was so scary because originally when he was like first in ancient Greece and he first started seeing the ancient world, he was a dude with a beard. But as he sort of goes across and is like accepted more widely, he becomes this young guy who is sort of androgynous and who likes to dress sometimes like a girl and sometimes like a boy. And he takes lovers of every gender and just sort of enjoys himself. And I think that really, really scared ancient Greek and Roman men. Since we started getting into Dionysus, like how scary that is for people who might be really invested in traditional gender roles. Like if there isn't like this really strong divide between men and women that make women, you know, inferior in some way and like, you know, the weaker vessel or whatever that is. Like if there's no specific basis for oppressing women, that kind of undoes your whole society. I also think if you come from a very traditional background, if people don't have set roles, I grew up quite religious. I'm not as religious anymore. But if you don't have those roles anymore, you kind of like don't know which way is up and which way is down. And you sort of have to spend that time reinvesting in like, well, what makes sense? And how does this work? And what do I actually believe about this? And that whole self-exploration and deciding where you fit in society and what that means is quite labor intensive. And a lot of people would just rather not do that. Yeah, and I think a lot of the sources we get about places like ancient Greece are men talking about what women should be, what their place should be. But that doesn't necessarily mean that was the reality. I mean, we know there were women like Sappho and many other women who were published poets and writers who were producing work, putting it out there, and who were praised by their contemporaries for their work. There were women who served as heteri, which were essentially high-class courtesans who, while the Athenian wives were kind of at home being chased and doing everything they were supposed to be doing. These heteri would go to symposium and 
have these lively political debates with men. And that's what they were famous for, for being these intelligent, witty creatures who could entrance men, not just with their bodies, but with their conversations. So those are women who are really influential in the public sphere. So we always have to keep that in mind when you talk about the ancient world is how much of what we get is just their idealized vision of what women should be. We also can't really imagine what the societal pressures were like to be one thing or another thing because we don't know. And so much comes from Athens because it's more well documented, but Spartan women had a very different lifestyle as well. I mean, I have this theory after doing a lot of reading about women in different periods that the key, one of the keys to freedom and equality for women is exercise. How much exercise a woman is getting somehow equates to how loud her voice is in the public sphere. And it seems that way for Sparta that a lot of their kind of freedoms, they had so much more freedom than their Athenian counterparts. And it seems like a lot of that was that they were allowed to play with the boys, to wrestle, learn how to fight and wear shorter skirts. Oh my. Freedom of movement, very key. Freedom of movement, but also the confidence that physical fitness gives you, the feeling of ownership over your body, the you know strength and confidence that comes with that. And I wonder how loud and proud Spartan women were. I wonder how much of that had to do with how much they were exercising. I think there's also something there about like the, I guess they were allowed to wear shorter skirts or like shorter outfits or whatever. The less you have to deal with modesty issues and modesty taboos as a woman, the more freedom of movement you have too, because all of a sudden you're not weighed down with like, oh my God, can they see my ankle? Can they see my boobs? Can they see my body? That's like yet another way to hem women in is to put these like really stringent modesty requirements on you. Shame. That feeling of shame and that feeling of, oh, you know, if men treat you like a prostitute in the street, it's because you you let your ankle show. And that's on you. We were talking about how the Spartans viewed the act of giving birth and the idea that they felt very much like a woman was battling, like birth was a battlefield. And that is so different from how other cultures viewed pregnancy. And I think when you view everything in that sort of martial way, it gives them more agency because like this is something they are taking control of and this is a battle they are doing and something only they can do. And it definitely goes back to that older culture of one warrior, one war, all that kind of stuff. And I think like to view it through that lens really does give women more equal footing with men. And I think we have to be a little bit careful, too, though, because I don't think that it was like a feminist utopia or anything. Oh, God, no. (laughs) Definitely not. One of the reasons that they let women work out so much or encourage them to work out is because they thought it made them better childbearers. So a lot of that wasn't about like, you do you, girl. You know, it was about what's going to make you a better breeder for the state. Exactly. Like your role was to give birth to strong, strapping sons. But also a lot of times in Sparta, like because the men were all fighting so much, the women just had more agency to get shit done. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They were running the household, but they also didn't. I mean, their men were away so much that they were very much large and in charge and making the decisions and doing what they wanted to do. Otherwise, nothing would happen. Exactly. Considering just like the breadth and depth of women's ordinary lives and history that you study in your podcast, and we encounter this all the time. I'm sure you also encounter, I know you do, like just the misogyny. And also, I think the constant story of how women aren't allowed to live lives as full as the lives that men lead in so many ways across so many cultures and history. I mean, does it ever get to you? Absolutely. It gets to me all the time. It makes me feel sad and frustrated for these women that just by being women, they were so hemmed in in so many ways. But it also, I mean, it made me appreciate where we are now. I mean, things, I wouldn't say that today we're living in a feminist utopia either, but the things that we're able to do and achieve and just the freedom of movement and that I can go for a run in short shorts and I don't know, that, <laughs> that I that I have the freedoms that I have. I mean, I was, and of course, right then with that example, I was like, yes, until that guy wolf whistles at me while I'm trying to cross a road. But anyway. No, but that's absolutely true. And it's like a remnant of something very old. Absolutely. And that's the thing is there's this common thread that even though things are so different in so many ways today, some of the stuff that we still are grappling with are things that women have always grappled with. But at the same time, I've discovered things about women in past periods that has really made me rethink what it was like to be them and how restricted their lives were. Like in the Victorian era, we think of these women wearing corsets and hoop skirts as being so constrained. And it was like they were being put in this prison and they could barely sit and they could barely move. But the thing with crinolines is, you know, they were 
basically those, these giant, giant hoop skirts that made them such a massive presence in public. Men quite literally had to move out of the way if a woman wanted to come through. So it allowed women to take up space in a way that they hadn't previously, but it also meant that they could move their legs a lot more freely. I mean, they could be doing squats under there and no one would know. There could be a whole other person under there and you wouldn't even know. Right? <laughs> That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> I automatically went back to Mesalina's Imperial Brothel. <laughs> oh, yeah. We never really left Mesalina's Imperial Brothel, let's be real. No, how could we? I don't know. When did the birth control pill happen? Like the 60s? Like when did women get the right to vote? When were we allowed to have credit cards and property without a man signing off on that? Like not that long ago when you consider the sweep of history. And it's just like we're all existing on this extremely thin scrim of freedom, obviously not perfect freedom, and it depends on where you are in the world. And underneath it is just currents of misogyny, you know, going down through time. I mean, the thing that makes me feel better about it is learning how women subverted all of those strictures in so many fascinating ways, the ingenious things they did to take up space and to live the lives they wanted to. Like with the example of those hoop skirts again, women during the Civil War in America were super successful spies. And one of the reasons why was because they were able to manipulate their society's view of what women were, these gentle retiring creatures who would never do anything underhanded to their advantage. There were women who quite literally smuggled dozens of guns underneath their skirts, walked straight through enemy lines, and were never even searched, which would have taken such bravery to do. But their skirts and their society's visions of who they were and who they were supposed to be, they completely used to their advantage to do some incredible things. So while it is frustrating to read about the kind of shit they had to deal with. Reading about how they subverted those rules and the things they did to get shit done is really inspiring to me. That's amazing. Yeah. We saw some really intriguing posts on your social media about ancient Rome and like different artifacts you were finding when you were researching. You have some upcoming episodes on ancient Rome, right? Yes, I do. So there was, you know, the picture of, of the scorpion flying penis thing like (laughs) (laughs) will you tell us about this i'm dying to ask you please tell us about that yes i've been dying to tell you about the scorpion dick and you know what these are the details i just live for you know you start reading about what life was like in an ancient civilization and all of a sudden boom penises everywhere scorpion dick right in your face (laughs) (laughs) i know it's like the penis parade (laughs) oh yeah and you're just like wow i just never would have expected so many penises to be flying around i mean i kind of did expect penises to be flying around in ancient rome but in a different way than i thought (laughs) (laughs) right by this time you never know when when the flying penis is gonna pop up like (laughs) i know I mean, it's like when you go to Pompeii and there's penises all over the place and you're like, oh. So here's the deal with the penises in ancient Rome. So ancient Rome was a place, as you both will know, where penises featured very heavily in the decor. The Latin word for these penis emblems is fascinum. And fascinare means to use the power of a fascinus, which it it essentially means to enchant, which is where we get the word fascinating from. It comes from fascinum. It comes from penises. Yes, it comes from penises. So when you say to someone, that's fascinating. So it comes from the power to like capture a penis. Yes. So their most common function was to ward away evil. But Romans considered the erect male member to be good luck. They were all over the place in ancient Rome. They're carved into walls. They're used as pendants, put on rings. They're penis lamps. Oh, Jenny, that's what you're getting for Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, Saturnalia, sorry. (laughs) I mean, listen, number one, ancient history fangirl celebrates Saturnalia. We do not celebrate Christmas. I mean, individually, we might celebrate whatever. But as a podcast, we celebrate Saturnalia. And I'm going to put that on my list. Yes. I think It's now the only thing on my list. (laughs) (laughs) As it should be at the very top. So the picture I think that I shared was actually of one of these things, but it was of us. They had these swinging bronze phalluses that they'd put over doors and they'd have these little bells attached. And it was considered good luck to touch them. So if you travel to ancient Rome and you're standing outside a shop, you're going to see all these people rubbing this bronze penis with bells on it, which is just like that is so delightful and so bizarre and amazing. (laughs) That's phenomenal. (laughs) I know. It's just so good. I mean, and those are the things that really bring the past to life is when, you know, if I was walking around ancient Rome, I'm going to see penises everywhere and people touching them and no one's going to bat an eye about that. No, everyone does it. It's part of the culture. So one of my other favorite things to read about was ancient Roman table manners. So apparently 
during feasts. They didn't have forks for eating. You used your fingers, of course. But they did have a tool that looked kind of like a spoon on one end, like it had one flat round end and one pointy end. The pointy end was for picking your teeth. The spoon-like end was for sticking into your ear and cleaning out your earwax during dinner. Oh. You know, I think that that is from the Gauls because the Gauls also had a little spoon for your earwax. Ah, interesting. Yeah, very concerned with hygiene. And even from like the 500s BC on, there was a lot of cultural exchange. And the Gauls had, they were known for their makeup, for example. Like Gallic makeup was very expensive in Rome. And I didn't know that the ancient Romans had an earwax spoon, but I know that the Gauls did. So it's possible that that was a cultural exchange thing. Just a thought. I could be wrong. Yeah, it's very possible. Those are the things that I just find so fascinating is when you think about like going to a feast, lying next to a man on a couch while you eat and having to just casually watch him pick out his earwax and drop it on the floor. That is different than the last dinner party I had. (laughs) (laughs) It would be one of those things where as like, you know, time travelers transported to ancient Rome, it would just be one of those things that we might find pretty shocking, you know, but just everybody does it. And I just love that they didn't have shame in the same way we have shame. Those are the things that make me feel like ancient Rome and the headspace of an ancient Roman was so different than mine. It's that you'd go to a dinner party and there was nothing to be embarrassed about if you let out a fart or if you needed to clean out your earwax and drop it on the floor. No one's going to bat an eye. Yeah, but somebody's got to clean that up. I know. Well, you know, it's probably going to be a slave, unfortunately. If you were a slave in ancient Rome, you would have thought Romans were the most disgusting people you ever saw. Oh, my God. Yeah. Especially if you come from a culture like the Gauls, where they were very, you know, careful about their bodies and very, like, clean, you know, like they really, I mean, not to say that the Romans weren't because they were really into their baths. I don't know. I don't know a lot about Gallic tradition, but you're talking about someone whose job is literally to go get the sponge that you used to wipe your bum with and, I guess, disinfect it or whatever you do with the bum sponge. <laughs> I, I, I try not to think too hard about the bum sponge, honestly. <laughs> I bet that came up prominently in your research. It came up a few times. Do we want to talk about these women in history that we wanted to cover? We had this section where we were like, let's tell each other about somebody we haven't covered yet, but who we really want to cover. Kate, do you have one for us? Yeah, I do. Cool. It's like choosing a favorite child. I'm very excited about many of them. I was going to say I'm really excited about Cleopatra, and I am really excited to cover, finally cover Cleopatra, but I'm actually going to go with Theodora. Empress Theodora, I just am fascinated by her. I mean, she wielded more power and influence than most women during the Roman Empire. I think someone just asked us to cover Theodora. We've gotten several messages, yeah, about Theodora and how we should cover. Is she not like the wife of Justinian? Yes, she's the wife of Justinian. And she's fascinating because she's such a rags to riches story. You know, she was the, I think her father was an animal tamer at the Hippodrome. She was an actress and, you know, most probably also a prostitute from a very young age. And then she went on to marry one of the most powerful, influential emperors ever. And was the first woman ever to have her face on a Roman coin. Sorry. I know that's not true. (laughs) (laughs) No. I just really love that she wielded so much power under her own steam. I mean, she certainly did it because she was the wife of the emperor, but she had so much kind of naked influence in ways that other Roman women didn't necessarily. She really took care of business and she did it for women. She was very influential in helping Justinian to craft these changes in the laws that were really beneficial to women, to women who had been prostitutes, to a lot of people who were underprivileged. It helped women get education. So she started out life living in the Hippodrome, being a sex worker and ended up becoming a saint. And I'm just really excited to talk about both her life, but also to talk about the Byzantine Empire, to talk about the world she was living in, because it's really lush and really interesting. Mm. My lady that I'm really excited to cover, her name's Phryne. Yes. Yeah, I'm sure you know all about Phryne. So I have been wanting to do this story for a really long time. I was in a garden in Corfu with Jen. You weren't in a garden. You were in the Achillean, where there's a giant statue to Achilles. It's all themed on the Trojan War. Sorry, I'm going to nerd out. I'm going to stop now. (laughs) And I get to talk about Hector. Sorry. No, I'm done. I'm done. Sorry. (laughs) Ooh, Hector. You know, you're right. I was in the Achillean. But there was a statue of Phryne in this garden. And it was a really stunningly beautiful statue. I think it was a replica. 
Africa and um, I read her story. It was like an informational plaque because I love a good informational plaque. And I looked her up later and was just a little bit obsessed. So the reason I haven't covered her yet is because it's a bit outside the stories I'm telling for the podcast that I have planned coming up, but I do want to get to it eventually. So this is the story of the ancient Greek courtesan or hetairai, Phryne. Did I pronounce that right? Hetairai? Hetairai? Well, that's how I pronounce it. So let's go with it. Hetairai. So what I want to do is a wider episode on courtesans and sex workers in ancient Greece and maybe ancient Greece and Rome, depending how big the sweep of the narrative is. Well, what we were talking about was doing like sex workers. You would cover sex workers and I'll do Vestal Virgins. Right, like a back-to-back thing. I love Vestal Virgins. They were such badass ladies. Yes. (laughs) Yes. It's just such a cool way of showing different ways that independent women could hold power in these societies because the Vestal Virgins were also invested with a lot of power and independence in one way. So much power and so much independence. Yeah, and the courtesans had that in a different way. So it's really cool to look at the different facets of that. So anyway, we talked about the Hetairai a little bit, but just a recap is they were higher class sex workers who got to choose their own lovers and also provided companionship and sophisticated conversation. Like Kate said before, they were known for their intelligent discourse and they were allowed to move in spaces that ancient Greek women traditionally weren't allowed to move in. So they had a lot of freedom. So Phryne was a courtesan who was born in 371 BC in ancient Greece and her name means toad, which was kind of a derogatory epithet used for most sex workers back then. But she decided she was going to own it and just tell people that that was her name and fuck you, which is pretty awesome. And she was known for her absolutely phenomenal beauty. It's said that at some festivals she would take her hair down and wade naked into the sea. And And that inspired the famous painting of Aphrodite rising from the sea created by the painter Apelles. She was also a nude model who posed for very famous sculptures, including the Aphrodite of Nidos, which is the earliest known nude statue of a woman from ancient Greece. And there's all this really interesting stuff that I found just on a deep dive about this statue and its history and like stuff like that that I want to get into in the episode. Supposedly, she was so wealthy that when Alexander the Great destroyed the walls of Thebes in 336 BC, she offered to pay for the rebuilding, but only if they inscribed the words destroyed by Alexander, restored by Phryne the courtesan on the walls, which was big because in ancient Greece at the time, women were not supposed to be in public like that. Like as a woman, you weren't supposed to have your name out there, right? Like that was kind of a thing. Also, just like Phryne the courtesan, not just Phryne. I want you all to know that I am giving you the money to do this with the work I did that you all sneer at. Fuck you. Totally. Yeah, what a baller. It's such a fuck (laughs) you moment. I just love her for that. So Phryne was put through this impiety trial. This is one of the more famous moments of her life. She was defended by this famous orator um, named Hypirides. Hypirides, we're just going to go with that. Hypirides, that sounds like somebody I've read of before. So he was famous, so maybe. But the judge apparently was not on board with her defense, and it looked like she was going to lose. And I don't know what the punishment for this was. Note to self, look it up when I do the episode. I don't know. But it must have been pretty bad. Anyway, when it seemed like the judge was not going to acquit Phryne and she was going to have to be convicted of impiety, Hippirides pulled down her dress and bared her breast to the assembled throng. (laughs) I know. I know. I know. I roll. Because every time, the only way a woman can turn the tide is to just whip them out. Whip them out. I mean, (laughs) Kate, have you come across this a lot where women just bare their breasts in extreme time periods, like being really upset? What is that? What is that? Yeah, boobs. Yes, I don't know. You find a lot of art from different periods, especially about ancient women. And why are their boobs always out? There's always a boob out. Just to make sure we know she's a woman, just because what? Right. Always. So anyway, like the source I was reading this from, Wikipedia. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone's first source for ancient history research. Right. This is like, this is the Wikipedia version I'm giving you right now. Basically, it was presented like that. Like, because she was in such extreme duress, her boob was whipped out, not by her, but by her lawyer. Thinking that this (laughs) might, you know, draw the sympathy of the crowd. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Just like the guy's like, all right, we've done everything else. Take him out. Like, what? <laughs> Time to call in the big guns. <laughs> Boobs out. <laughs> anyway, the, the point is that this worked and the judges were just in such awe for the perfect beauty of her. Um, how would you put this in your podcast, Kate? Her lady orbs. She had the most perfect lady orbs in antiquity. So how could you not? <laughs> lady orbs. Oh, yeah. 
flawless lady orbs and they stunned everyone to silence and the judges were then pretty sure that Phryne was a goddess or goddess adjacent like a priestess or a prophetess or something beloved by Aphrodite or demigoddess right so they refused to convict her and she got off that's one of the big stories in her life there's other stuff and I cannot wait to delve right in and give you all of it yeah, so my person is the total opposite of that. <laughs> she's <laughs> she's kind of famous for being like a murder she wrote Jessica Fletcher in her older years. I've managed to shoehorn her into so many episodes, but I'm desperate to cover Antonia Minor, who was the youngest daughter of Mark Antony, that proud war elephant, and Octavia. And she was one of the few women who ever like got to say no to Augustus and somehow not die. She had a long-standing feud with his wife Livia. She raised her own children who were all exceptional children. They were Germanicus. Our golden god. Our golden god, our blue-eyed prince. She she also raised the future emperor Claudius, who was not her favorite child, and she had no qualms about saying that. And her daughter <laughs> Lavilla, who we'll get to in a minute. So she had these three kids. They were all going to be linchpins in the dynasty. And the reason I want to talk about her is because we always look at her through the children she raised and then the grandchildren she raised and then the grandson who was like haha kill yourself literally well that's that's cheery well that was Caligula wasn't it and we don't actually ever ever look at her and I don't want to like get too into the weeds because there's so many names it's a big story that we've covered bits of and what I really want to do is drill into her life and talk about what it would have been like growing up in Octavia's boarding house for all of Antony's wayward children that she was raising what would it have been like growing up as the stepsister of Cleopatra Selene and Octavia was one of the few women who died of natural causes in that family because most people in the Julian Claudian family did not have that ending even the women they had quite violent ends. And I really feel like Antonia Minor is one of those people who we don't talk a lot about. She died age 72, which is old for the ancient world. She lived seven decades and she saw her father die. She saw her great uncle Augustus die. She saw Tiberius and then eventually Caligula. She was around for everything. And we just forget about her because she's one of those women who after she was married, she kind of gets sidelined and has to raise all of these children. And then once those children are raised, well, that generation has a difficult time and she winds up raising all of their children. And actually, when she is in her detective grandma phase, she finds out that her daughter, her only daughter, was plotting to overthrow Tiberius, who we all know was a dick. And she, for reasons unknown, rats out her own daughter. And then Tiberius decides, you know what? I'm going to let you decide your daughter's punishment. I'll take care of Sejanus and his buddies, but you're going to take care of your own daughter. And she decides that she's going to lock her daughter in her room and starve her to death. Oof brutal. It's really rough. And, you know. So Antonia Minor, not a role model. She's not not a role model either. It's ancient Rome. The bar is low. <laughs> the bar is low. And she does raise a lot of people up. And I mean, there's so much to get into. She had a, a little feud with Livia, who was Augustus's second wife. And as a result, like when we were telling the story of Germanicus's kids, we sort of briefly touched on the time when everyone goes to live with Livia, who was Tiberius's mother, and nobody lives with Antonia. And then all of a sudden, after Agrippina gets exiled, they come back to live with Antonia. And as I was digging into it, I was like, oh my god, there was a feud! How did I miss this feud? And there's just so much there. And I just feel like she gets sidelined a lot because she She's an older woman in ancient Rome. And we kind of forget that actually everything she was doing had a purpose. She refused Augustus several times to be remarried. And then her home became like this salon where she was entertaining like princes and dignitaries and everything else while Tiberius was off on Sex Island. Like she was the height of culture. And I just want us to dig into that a bit. I think we should totally do just an individual episode where Jen gets to talk about Antonia to her heart's content. I know. And can you imagine being the youngest daughter of Mark Antony and Octavia? And Octavia is another one. She lived a long time. She knew how to play that Game of Thrones. Mm -hmm. You see what I mean? Just give Jen all the room she needs to talk about Antonia because <laughs> I'm just like dying to talk about Antonia. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's the same way I feel about Octavia. I'm like, we always talk about her as this perfect Roman woman, but there had to be more to Octavia than that. She falls on the, you know, butter wouldn't melt in her mouth. She's the perfect human, no flaws whatsoever spectrum of how men cover women. It was super interesting, Kate, when we were doing the Cleopatra episodes. Not all of them are out as of this recording, although most of them probably will be by the time we drop this episode. It was so fascinating for me to see the way that Jen's mind worked when it came to Octavia, because I had interpreted her as just this like really bland, goody two-shoes kind of a person. And Jen was like, oh my God, all the strategy and what she's doing right now. Do you see it, Jenny? Do you see it? And I was like, I can see it if I squint. But it's one of those things where, like, it's easy to see the strategy with Cleopatra because Cleopatra, you can literally see her desperate fight for survival. But Octavia, it's different because she's got to deal with her brother who nobody can get along with and nobody likes. This is Octavian, eventually Augustus. No one liked him. And she's married off to Mark Antony as a way to secure peace. And Mark Antony is a bloody war elephant who loves you so passionately when you're in his orbit. And the minute you're not, he's like, new phone who dis? That is Mark Antony. He's the fuckboy of fuckboys. He was like, he loved the one he was with, literally. If you're in the same room with him, he loves you. If you're not, he has no idea who you are. And Octavia was in this terrible position. She really loved her first husband and she had a couple of kids with him. And once she was married to Mark Antony, she got to live in his house and she got to run his house and she was in charge because most of the time he fucked off somewhere else. So as long as she was married to him, she had power. But as soon as he repudiated her and divorced her, she had no power and she had to go back and live with her brother. I mean, I would dispute that she has no power because she was Octavian's favorite and Octavian's still had a lot of power. Yeah, she was Octavian's favorite, but remember how difficult Octavian was to control. And Octavian sort of had a stick up his ass. And can you imagine like going from having a husband you love to having this new Dionysus freewheeling war elephant to having to go back and be this perfect image of a woman and swim in these Roman undercurrents. And also like she eventually has to raise Antony's children with Cleopatra in addition to her own two children that she had with Antony and Antony's children he had with Fulvia. And her own kids with her first husband. So it's a lot of kids. Yeah, but they would have been older by then. They're out of the house. They're at least 14, Jenny. Somebody's married them. I'm sorry. I forgot about the 14-year-old child brides. <laughs> Come on, Jenny. Get it together. How much do you wish that Octavia left us her diary? You know, so we could know what it was really like. Because, you know, she was just raging in there and saying all the things she really felt about having to raise her wayward husband's children with other women. And like the insight that would give us into how she really felt and what her it felt like to be her. Man, I would love that diary. Oh, man, I would love that diary, too. I don't know if I would pay more for that or for Cleopatra's scientific treatises or for Agrippina's, like, story of her life. Like, there's so many things that women actually wrote that just haven't survived in history because dudes decided that they weren't important. And you see that rewriting of history by men who are threatened by the women in their lives in Egypt as well. Hatshepsut was one of the most baller pharaohs there ever was. And she took the power from essentially kind of her stepson, even though they weren't really related. She made this incredible move that even though she had no clear path to power, she basically oversteps this teenage guy who is old enough that he could have been Pharaoh himself and hangs on to power for more than a decade. And then as the Pharaohs often did, she put up her image all over Egypt to solidify her power and as part of her PR strategy. And then when she died, this stepson basically tried to erase her from history, like took down all her monuments, scratched her name off of the buildings that she created, basically tried to make it so she never existed. And for a long time in our collective memory, we didn't really know anything about her and that she existed. But she rose eventually. She was too powerful to be kept down. So you never know. We might still find Agrippina's story of her own life tucked away somewhere. Octavia's secret diary where she pours out all her rage. Someone needs to write that fan fiction. Or like actual historical fiction. Yes. Give it to me. I mean, it just always astonishes me when they live for a decent amount of time and you know the overwhelming societal pressures around them and the people they're swimming with. And you're just like, wow, you did better than I would because I'm definitely Agrippina the Elder and I would not shut up. I'd mouth off to the wrong guard and get beaten. Oh, so would I. My eyes on the floor. Right, I know. Same. So... Kate, can you tell us a little bit about your new season that's coming up? Sure. So I have been spending the last couple of months immersing myself in ancient Rome, which has been really daunting and intimidating. I think it's been the hardest time and place that I've had to cover because it's just so vast. 
there's so much to talk about. And because it's the ancient world, sometimes it's hard to know for sure. It's hard to feel truly confident that I am creating an accurate picture of what it was like to be a woman at that time, but I'm excited to dive into it. So it'll start with a couple of episodes that walk you through a day in the life of an ancient Roman matron, fairly well-to-do matron. So it'll be, you know, we'll go from morning to evening. We'll talk about what she's wearing and what her household is like and her relationship with hair and makeup and the slaves and servants that are in her household and going to the baths and going to the Colosseum and just all the different aspects of what she might have encountered. And we'll meet some women from different social strata along the way. And then I'll delve into the stories of more specific women. So I've saved Cleopatra for my Roman chapter because I really wanted to talk about ancient Egypt, then ancient Greece, and then Cleopatra, because I feel like you need the background on both of those places and a little bit about being a woman in Rome, because she has so much interaction with the Roman world before you can really truly appreciate some aspects of her story. So I'll talk about her and some other women who rebelled against the Roman Empire, which I'm super excited about. So women like Boudicca and Zenobia. Yes! <laughs> yes, I've been waiting. I have been waiting to cover those women. So I'm psyched about that. And I'm going to talk about some imperial women as well. So I'll talk about Theodora and I'm going to talk about a bunch of women that you've both covered, Agrippina and Livia and some of the other. So I just want to talk about essentially how these imperial women took charge, the different paths they took to power and the difficulties that they had to grapple with and some of their triumphs. So yeah, I can't wait. This is really exciting. We are eagerly awaiting this. <laughs> Thank you both for, I mean, I've listened to everything you guys have produced pretty much. And you, since I've entered the ancient world, the two of you and your work has been really, it's taught me a lot and it's inspired me a lot and kept me excited when I was feeling kind of daunted and burnt out on the frustrations of trying to discover, rediscover women in the ancient world. So thank you for all the work that the two of you do to bring it to life. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Kate, where can people reach you? They can find me at my website, which is the explorespodcast.com. I'm pretty active on Instagram. I post a lot of stuff on there because I love visuals. My account is the Explores Podcast. You can find me on Twitter at the Explores Pod, and you can find me on Facebook as well. Just go binge everything. You will not regret it. <laughs> find something, clean your house, and binge the whole thing. It'll be amazing. Or go for a long run in your short shorts. You won't hear the cat calls if you're binging the Explorers. It's great. <laughs> and if you do, just give them a finger. It's fine. <laughs> Thank you so much. And we'd like to let you guys know that if you want to find us, we are where we always are. We're on Twitter at Ancient History Fan. We're on Instagram and Facebook at Ancient History Fangirl. And come and say hello. And if you've enjoyed what you've listened to, then let us know. Give us a nice comment. Or if you'd like to leave reviews, leave a review and you can also donate to our patreon at patreon.com forward slash ancient history fangirl and we will see you in two weeks or next week or next week wait next week we will see you next week <laughs> we'll see you next week <laughs>